Longbox Crusade presents monthly Monday movie muckabout because the podcasting world needs another movie review show. I'm Rick, also known as Doc Jeff from Jeff and Rick Presents, and I love movies. You all know that. We've done this a number of times. I got this large movie collection. I also took over the LBC headquarters in their attic and their movie collection and blah, blah, blah. That's what I do. Okay, let's get on to the good stuff. I got a friend here who is all the way from up north in Canada, and he's a funny, funny guy. His name is Roy, and he loves movies, and he has seen a bunch of movies. And so I had to really, really try to figure out what I was going to give him, but we'll get to that in a bit. For right now, I'd like to introduce you to Roy Alexander, a.k.a. Cash Shadow. Yes, another one of my geocaching friends. Roy, how you doing, my friend? I'm doing fantastically very apprehensive about what movie you've picked for me. But other than that, doing well, living through each day, being Groundhog Day as it is. Yes, yes, yes. It's the uh, never-ending days of 2020-2021. It's yeah. just ever, ever, ever stopping. Which is sad because I don't get to see you that often anyways, because we only kind of cross paths once every other year. Maybe if we're lucky twice a year, if you ever come down to Oregon or I ever go up to yep. someplace you are. I miss seeing you, my friend, but at least I can see you on this little computer screen. It is strange. We just have the same aroma. It does not. It does not have the same aroma at all. Not at all. Uh, that aroma usually is, involves a lot of alcohol, but I, oh. I digress. I digress. We, we talked a little bit about this last time we spoke. You love movies. You watch a lot of movies, and you have your own connection to movies, correct? Yes. So as a kid, I used to go and sit with my father and watch black and white movies on tv we'd never go and see them at the cinemas we'd call it movie theater they'd always be old movies from 30s 40s 50s and then when i got a bit older i found out that my mother had actually been in some tv shows in england when she was a teenager she'd done some stuff on stage with drama my uncle had been in goodbye mr chips i believe when he was um, a youngster and my mum was always somewhat dramatic and would always like to ask me movie trivia or trivia about soundtracks from movies. And it just went from there. So I had an eclectic collection of VHS tapes when I was a kid with a lot of things like National Velvet. And I kind of graduated to things like Cherry 2000 as I got older. <laughs> that is a jump. <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. I got to be Elizabeth Taylor and your Molly Griffith in there. And then we moved to Canada in 1990 from England. And you divest yourself of everything at that point. They wouldn't work here anyway. And we had the wonders of cable television. And it was a, a strange thing for me to have more than four channels at that point. My parents got cable TV and a little magical decoder box, which let us get pay-per-view channels. And so we had viewer's choice, I think it was, which was You'd have your set movies on rotate over 10 channels. And I would sit there all night from say, 9 o'clock right through to 5 a.m. and just watch movies. And the movies that I would see would sometimes be classics in North America. or I'd never heard of them before. Mm -hmm. and so I'd had to watch them all. And like, I remember the one particular season where I watched The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. And then it was a Steven Seagal movie. And I, I was just thrilled that I could go from one to the other. Like Eric Leniak was in one particular movie that was quite memorable. And I've always enjoyed the variety. And I wouldn't necessarily say critiquing anybody's acting, because let's face it, they're doing it. Mm -hmm. I couldn't be in that position. But critiquing the different ways of conveying the stories. And I'm someone that, 
used to read an awful lot as a kid, but I have to say I've been very fortunate to not sell my own impression of most movies by avoiding the books that most movies are written after. So when they say the book was better, I just don't know. <laughs> well, I, this is going to be fascinating because I, I've always enjoyed talking to you. I, I've had a really great relationship with you and we have a lot of fun together. We have a lot of humorous conversations, but I've always wanted to have you on the show because I just thought that you would be fascinating and interesting. And especially once I learned about your absolute love of movies. So this is a real treat for me. And you gave me a very challenging list. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. I looked at the list and I always try to pick a movie that I have seen. And on the list, I there was two on that list that you gave me. And I had to make a choice. And I made a choice with a movie that I consider to be very, very good. I have only seen it one time, but I own a copy of the movie. And it's one of those movies that I've owned. And I said, I need to rewatch that sometime. But I've never found the time to rewatch it. Are you ready for me to tell you what I'd like you to rewatch with me? I am I'm ready. I would like you to watch Grave of the Fireflies, the 1988 Japanese animated war tragedy film. Now, before I get too much further into that, I will say I, I, I will say this much. It is a Studio Ghibli film, but is one of the few Studio Ghibli films that is not actually made by Miyazaki. So if anybody out there is going, ooh, a Studio Ghibli film with me, you know, it's a Miyazaki film. No, folks. This is not a Miyazaki film. What do you know about this film, Roy? I, when I went to the list, I made sure I didn't look too much. I think it was from the 80s. Mm -hmm. And I, all I remember is that the director was one that had done another movie I had seen. Couldn't tell you what it is. So I'm actually going completely blind to this because just just to tell you how I came up with the list, I went through IMDb's top 100, and I can't remember if I came up with five or six. And then I went through a couple of other must-see lists. Uh, most of them overlap. Mm-hmm. And there were probably only four or five movies that I had never, ever heard of. This is one of them. <laughs> well, that's good. Now, yes. I, now, I will say that since this is a Japanese film, I am going to probably butcher some of these names. But it was directed by Iseo Takahata. And like I said, it was animated by Studio Ghibli. This film has been done by the original Japanese voice actors. But of course, there's been a couple of different dubbings that have been done by English actors. I believe that the one that I've got isn't even listed on this list that I've got because I think, no, this is the 1998 one. So I've got one dubbing that's done. I know there's another one that's dubbing that's been done on it as well. But this is a very classic movie. It's just, it's an animated war tragedy film, like I said. <laughs> so you, you haven't even heard of the film. So I mean, why you haven't you seen it? Before, I, how deep is your knowledge for a lot of uh, Studio Ghibli films in Japanese animation? I would say probably nearing to zero or in the negative. I've spent more time probably being aware of storylines and genres that overlap than the details of who produced the things mm-hmm. and who released them. I think the last movie that was produced in Japan that I've seen was probably Spirited Away. Okay. I watched that. Uh, a few times, but most recently, I think it's probably just before Christmas. And I've always appreciated, I guess, the true art involved Mm -hmm. in some movies. And whenever I hear of a movie that has that kind of cover, there's no way to put it, even just the title, the artwork, you just get this feeling it's going to be artistic. And you get this feeling it's going to be precise. And there was a cartoon 
I watched as a kid called Ulysses 31. Okay. Which is on YouTube and you have to look it up. And there's a feeling to that whole cartoon that I loved as a kid. And it, they broke this cartoon up into a series, a weekly series on BBC TV. My first glance at this cover going through IMDb reminded me of Ulysses 31. And that's the, the reason why I smile when you brought that up, because I, rec- <laughs> I recognize the cover more than I recognize the name, but I know I don't know the movie. Well, you were right with the Spirited Away. Spirited Away is another Studio Ghibli film, so you'll recognize some of the art stylings, and you'll actually be able to appreciate a bit of that. It, this is, like I said, a different director, because Spirited Away was a Miyazaki film, and this one's not. But you'll still get the quality that has come to be expected from a lot of Studio Ghibli films. That's getting a little too farther away from the field. We are just talking about Grave of the Fireflies and your knowledge of it. And I think we can stop here to let you go and experience this film. We are going to listen to the trailer from 1988's Grave of the Fireflies. And we are back. Now, for those of you that have not had the opportunity to watch Grave of the Fireflies, and I can understand it's it's a real strong movie to get through, but I've got a little quick short synopsis of the film for those of you that have not sat down and watched this fine, fine movie. This is a story of a brother and a sister named Sita and Setsuko, set during the final months of World War II in Japan. After a bombing raid destroys their home and their mother dies, the teenage boy and his much younger sister are forced to live with an aunt. After selling their mother's possessions and giving the aunt all of their food, the aunt becomes resentful and very bitter. Feeling that they have no other choice, the two children leave and find shelter by a river. Sita tries to provide for them, but he has to resort to stealing and Setsuko becomes sick from malnutrition. The young girl dies from starvation, and after caring for his sister's ashes, Seda dies as well, homeless, while carrying the remains of his sister. So, Roy, how you feeling, buddy? (laughs) What was your first impressions of the film? So, as I went through the film, I was struck by that it doesn't have a singular message, and it doesn't have... it, It has a story... Mm-hmm. And I remember from my 
drama classes back in the day, uh, <laughs> we have comedy and tragedy. So yeah. comedy normally starts at a, at, a, at a low and then it works its way up and it comes back down. Hence the unsmiley face of the tragedy mask and comedy being the opposite. And this one just flatlines. And it's almost as if it's conveying a message or it's retelling a story mm-hmm. or it's conveying a story with a message and it's your job to work out what the message is. And I got that within the first five mm-hmm. minutes. And when you're looking at the characters themselves, there's an, an objectivity that is demonstrated. So in typical movies, so let's say for a moment that we put aside that it's animated yeah. and we put aside that the story itself is it's in, it's in war. So yeah, bad thing happens. There are elements where the character at this point, the boy responds in a very matter-of-fact way. So yeah. I took that immediately and I went, he's dealing with it. Is he going to spend this whole movie dealing with it? And with one break, he did. That's what he, he objectively dealt with the situation. And so mm. when I watched it, my initial, and I've watched it twice, my, my, my initial thing was, this is a story written from the perspective of that kid and the opening scene of the movie is the ending yes and when the first five minutes gave me the ending and that ending was tragic (laughs) it's all tragic it's incredibly tragic (laughs) it made me think that that character was someone relaying a story of which they felt guilt and their death would be their escape not their atonement from that memory henceforth. And so I watched the first five minutes and I, and I saw a scene where you are introduced to the second character, his younger sister, within the first five minutes and there's fireflies. And although mm-hmm. you've got no story at that point, the visual and knowing the title of the movie, like, okay, this is the end. This is the only positive part in the story that the storyteller wants you to get. And I held on to that and I let the rest of the movie tell me why that was the relief. And for that reason, it was much less of a, a tragic storyline, mm-hmm. more of it, it kind of gave me two, two messages I got from this. Okay. One, love is not enough. No. <laughs> yeah, right? I would agree with that. Okay. I would agree with that. And the second one is sometimes there's no room for optimism. There's just survival in the moment. That I clicked up on that within about two minutes of seeing a scene where there's fire raining from from the skies. And the movie itself, the whole thing, I can understand why it could be harrowing. I can understand why it could be traumatic. Mm-hmm. But I think just that that objective switch from the, the first five minutes to saying, this is the escape. This is the parachute cord being pulled. Mm-hmm. Take that. This is the reason that that situation occurred. Made it sad, tragic, but it 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 wasn't one of the movies that made me find dust in my eye. Yeah, but I can understand it having people bowl their eyes out. Oh yeah. Um, let, yes. Let, and yeah. Let, let me ask you this then, I, because I've got a lot that I want to unpack with that. But 
How did it match up with your expectations? Because you had some expectation going into the film. Very little. I made sure I kept myself insulated from it. I'm thinking, oh, Spirited Away. It's Ghibli. (laughs) This is going to be all kind of like, you know, gold accented colors. And yeah, mm, completely different. Yeah. I mentioned to a few people I'd be reviewing it. And they were like, oh. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Why is that in the IMDb Top 100? And everybody's like, that's just, you don't want to, why you want to watch that? Like, mm-hmm. Are you okay? I'm like, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm fine. Oh, and I think that my impressions of the movie were that they were a dramatic depiction of history. I kind of got that mm-hmm. from the cover art, but I was in no way, shape or form actually prepared for what it would be. <laughs> and it was the complete opposite of what it thought it could be. And yeah. But and even the style of it, just the animation kind of threw yeah. me for a bit. Let's pick apart some of this because it is a movie that slaps you in the face and says, you will pay attention. And and we're going to go on a bit of a ride and just hang on. It does start off with the ending. And like you said, for me, watching that, that beginning part was, oh, yeah, you know what to expect. You know what the end is. You know exactly how this is all going to end. It's not going to deviate from it. Everybody's meeting a sticky end at this. Everybody's going to die very, very young. And it's going to be horrible. And that's what the expectation is. And and whereas I kind of went into it like, Ooh, yeah, this is going to be hitting really hard. I, I missed that, what you were talked about with that release. And I think that that is fascinating that it is a great read on the beginning that the, this is a release for them. This is where they are finally free. They're finally able to not have the horrors and the terrors and the hunger and the isolation. They're able to just be free of their bodies or be able to free this mortal coil. And it is a release and, and it is a, a happier take on the movie than yep. it really provides. <laughs> but let's pick apart some of the different pieces here. Let's, let's talk about the main characters if we can to start with. Uh, it, I mean, the movie is only about Seta and Setsuko. So these are our, our visions in. And, and you're completely right, too, that this is a story from the boy's point of view. It was written by the author wrote the story as an autobiography, not a complete autobiography because he's alive. <laughs> say, but, um, but, he, he's I mean, really but, talented. <laughs> but the thing is, is that he felt guilty with the death of his of, of his sister. Right. And, and he was writing about that experience in World War II and his selfishness. So, yes, it is very personal story that's coming from the boy's perspective. What did you think of Sita? What did, what did you think of that boy? It's a portion which felt a lot like Grace Under Fire at the beginning. And I think that when you are thrown into a situation of chaos, you sometimes find a strength to deal with things. And that's part of the, I guess, the objectivity is he's in a situation where a parent not only is... Um, missing but then is definitely injured to a point where Mm. he knows that they're passing away but he also realizes he has to take the responsibility of things and the point within the movie where he acknowledges that his mother has died there are no tears it's a i know what i've got to do i've got to get things done which is you can turn around and say that's his way of coping you can turn around and say it's naivety maybe it was a cultural thing because we're dealing in a time where everybody in that scenario was dealing with tragic occurrences every day we don't know in his his formative years even from say for example from five to ten if he spent his entire time dealing with his parents talking about people dying and Mm -hmm. funeral pyres maybe that was normal in that world i don't know but i found that that character it wasn't necessarily selfish but the idealism was 
not only something that kind of commanded respect, but it truly was the downfall. And there, the element of the movie that I found perhaps the most unanswered question is there's a portion where, where the storyline where he mentioned he's gone to the bank and there's mm-hmm. 7,000 yen. And later on, and only later on, at the point in time where his younger sister is pretty much at death's door, he's like, right. I'm going to go and get the money. Like, what were you going to do with it? And why now? Because the entire time, was it a case of, because of his youth, because of his immaturity, he wasn't, didn't really know what was going on. He couldn't recognize the signs. I can give you that. But there was a trigger flipped in his character within the storyline. And the tears that were spread is when his younger sister, basically she acknowledged, like, I was told by my aunt that my mother has passed. Mm-hmm. And she is dealing with it in a different way, dealing with it almost in a more um, earthly way so to speak. And the other aspect of the film was when you particularly look at the title of it, where she is taking these spent fireflies, one of a better phrase, mm-hmm. and assembling them and burying them. And the symbolism of that is that something that brought her joy and she is now committing them to the earth mm-hmm. with almost an understanding was much stronger than his. And I think that that's where I felt that this is a teenage boy thrown into a mix. You can only take so much. That mm-hmm. was his point. But the idealism, and the, there's a couple of flaws in the story from a perspective that even in wartime, I would imagine if someone would walk into my, my office and say, please look at my kid's sister, I'm simply mm-hmm. not going to say, yeah, she's having a bad day. Thanks for coming. Even if there's a list of a thousand, you would imagine there would be some aspect or some follow-up in the story to trying to say, you know what, educate the kid is if you don't feed your sister within the next 24 hours, she's gone, which might've been part of the situation at the time, but educate him. And no one tried to educate him in that film. I think you nailed it with saying that there is a lot of cultural elements to this film and a lot of Japanese films that, that being in Western civilization, we don't always get. And especially the time period in the 1940s, there's a nationalistic pride that's there as well. There's a bit of self-sufficiency. There's the expectation that these kids aren't on their own, that these kids are being looked at by some family member. That it, you know, yes, he's taking a sister there, but that's because the family members are busy, but there is a family member that's going to take care of it. Hey, kid, she needs to eat. Tell your guardian that. Go. So the fact that they are off on their own does make them different. And I would say that that's part of the reason why. I don't, yes, the doctor has no bedside manner whatsoever, but he probably is one of the few doctors that hasn't been conscripted to war. And would he be seen? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, Great, they saw him. Yeah, I got two minutes to check out your sister. Yeah, feed her. Next. So, and yeah, it just isn't really going to care, especially at that time. Why would he? You know, there's no social service and, now. And just, Nowadays, it's going to be much different. Yeah, but yeah, it's modern sensibility. It really hurts. But the kicker is the character felt so real. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons why the animation style itself worked. And you might get back to that in a later question, so I'll, you know, I'll, I'll let you fix <laughs> well, it out we, in a bit. <laughs> yeah, we we would def- we can definitely talk about the, the the art in there too. But let's talk a little bit about the sister now, because you you'd already mentioned her. She's a bit more of a of an id character. I think I've got that right. Where she just she will take instant satisfaction or gratification on anything that's going on, and that's you know she's got the uh, the entire uh, history with the 
hard candies and the the box of hard candies which is full at the beginning but as time goes on it becomes just the crumbs and then he fills it with water but she wants that satisfaction which is what you expect from a little kid you don't always get you don't always see them growing up or realizing that it's really hard and the things that you want aren't going to always be getting you're you're not always going to be getting what do you think about how that character kind of grew and developed as much as she could in that setting. From scene one, I felt that she was the embodiment of trust. Yeah. And she put trust entirely into her older brother. The moment that he had assumed that role, she effectively wrote off the trust element, the caretaker element of being her mother. She certainly wanted to have that association mm-hmm. and was missing her, but she looked to him. But the, I think the story and one of the reasons that the author probably conveyed it this way is her pure innocence of the situation is likely the trigger that makes most people bowl the rice out of this Mm -hmm. because the approach that she has is so open and she's looking to somebody who is ill-equipped to be able to assist yeah and so the fruit drop metaphor in the tin when you get to the scene as you say is where he's taking the remnants and he's just adding water in for the flavor. And you see that moment of joy. And if you listen to the score throughout, Fruit Drops always have got a score to them. It's slightly, there's a little more of an optimistic tone to it. Is It's that this kid lives for the sugar rush per se in every day, whether it's play or laughter mm-hmm. or just warm words and, and food. Um, but she's always looking to her older sibling yeah. for that. And I think that the character itself is stronger in way of conviction, but at the same time, hasn't got enough conviction yet developed to be able to make a difference. Yeah. And not recognizing that in yourself is, is not a flaw. She's you know, barely a toddler. Right. And I think that the character was written in such a way that they were strong enough for you not to feel pity for them, but for you to understand how the situation just put them in the crosshairs. Yeah. There was nothing that could be done that this older brother could do to save that kid. But if you wanted to save a kid on the planet, that would be the one in front of you in that situation that ticked all the boxes to say, oh, you know, I got 50 to choose from. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and I think that's one of the authors trying to convey that situation and trying to say, so you've mentioned that it's, you know, it was, was a real life mm-hmm. per se, is he's embodying all of the positive aspects of his younger sister they're conveyed across to the viewer, and you. There are no moments of doubt mm-hmm. on her character. No, the situation for her older brother. There's yeah, obviously steal to make ends meet, but there's still a couple of times where you're like, oh, okay, kid, that's maybe not the smartest thing to do. You can't find yourself in his corner the entire time, but you don't find yourself ever thinking, oh, this is going to turn out really bad for you kid i'm really sorry <laughs> you know it is yeah. because of the start sequence but at the same time like, you never doubt her decisions because she doesn't get to make them no she doesn't uh, it's part of the the trap that these two find themselves in and it, it's really his own fault the boy's own fault is that he has constructed this world where she is everything i mean uh, she is everything to him and she doesn't know anything else except what he can provide and so unfortunately it's a downward spiral they're in a trap where like where he can't get out because he has developed this idealistic persona that he is the only one that can protect his family until his father comes home and she has to rely on him and she doesn't realize that it can just be better if they bite pride go back to the ant go back to 
anybody and and actually have an adult in the in the room and even the pride aspect as you're mentioning his father so at the very end of the movie you see his reaction to the war being lost yeah and that tells you the entire time that the element of pride is prominent mm-hmm. which is truly their downfall yeah. through him yes and even from the photograph is i'm um, used this that photograph he pulled out of his father out at sea multiple times there were very few reminders visual throughout the movie other than the fruit drop container and it felt to me as if this was the balance between the two as he was sitting there saying fruit drop world i've got to deal with this this is the symbolism of my sister and her happiness and my total belief that my father will come home one day with and be a, a true hero mm-hmm. and i think that to your point the lack of guidance was so strong in the film that it either was was exactly like that for this individual or he truly truly felt that all those around him abandoned him mm-hmm. and i'm not sure that i have come up to a definite conclusion on whether going back to his aunt would have been delaying the inevitable but i think his sister might have had a better chance oh definitely even going back there maybe start maybe move into with the neighbor or just getting back into the community there's See, options the thing about there's this options. movie it makes you think about how many movies do you think about alternate what if they've yeah. done this what if they've done this no. yeah and that's the thing because you want to find a way to rationalize what happened mm-hmm. and that's what this movie does yeah. A lot more than in a lot of other movies yeah. I've seen. You, you get to the end of this movie and you've got, you have a lot in your head. You have a lot in your heart. You have a lot of emotions and you can't get the movie out of your head. What if, what if, what if there must have been better choices that they should have had. But we've, we've hit, hit on a lot of the reasons why not. The age of the kids, the maturity of the kids, the, the relationship with the aunt. I mean, the aunt comes across and it's interesting because we are, we are getting the narration from the boy's point of view. So... She does come across very shrewish. She takes and takes and takes the things that they have, and she gives them very little. But then you kind of take a step back and say, she is still providing a, a shelter. She is providing room for them. She is, is doing some of the cooking, and she's asking for very little. And maybe they are not doing enough. Maybe he should be doing some work. Maybe he should be trying to help out around the house a bit more. You know, maybe there's a little bit more that he could be doing. It's not an ideal situation, but... Compared to where they end up, oh, it could have been yeah. much, much worse. Or it was much worse. We saw it. Well, I think when I got halfway through, remember the old Choose Your Adventure books? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. The 80s? Yeah. This felt like it was Choose Your Adventure and someone had gone to the absolute most worst option on every page <laughs> yes. and then wrote a movie. Yep. Because there, there are no good decisions in this film. No, none. And I think that... When does that happen? How many times you say, I watched a tragedy film and you don't. No. And I think that's one of the other reasons why the the emotional storyline of it connects in a way that isn't direct. It almost, it almost tantalizes in its negativity. It's like, let's see what else can go wrong. And things just keep going wrong. Could keep going. And, and that's when it comes back to the animation is that the, it draws your focus. Yeah. So from the animation style, what I've noticed is that all of the effort and the detail is on the expression and the emotion of the characters who are key in that scene. Mm-hmm. And the storyline in the background. So for example, after the firebombing, um, and originally they're looking out and you see the movement of the characters, but the background scene is just static. The smoke's not moving. It's back in the distance. And it occurred to me at that point, just on the second watch, is 
you actually could have got rid of the entire background throughout the entire movie and just shown me the two characters on a stage, completely blacked out behind them, play the same sound, and I wouldn't have lost the storyline. Because the detail in the animation is all about the suffering mm-hmm. of these people and the odd moment of joy with a firefly. I won't deny the fact there are moments yeah. of minimal elation, but you didn't need to see the city devastation to know of the devastation. You didn't need to see the tent to know that they were enjoying the fireflies in a confined area. That was periphery. And that's why the detail and animation is so minimalized. Whereas the expression on the people and the movements and the shuffling of their feet and the energy or the lack of energy thereof in how they just depict each scene, that's what got me. And that's the thing that made me go, ah, okay, that's why this movie is why this movie is yes yes i I, not taking anything away from the background i mean this is a very very beautiful movie to look at in all the cells even in the background because while the suffering is going on you can't help but also say what an idyllic setting for them to be dying in they're they got this nice little cave that's right on this little patch of water and it's yes it they got some flies and mosquitoes and stuff but i mean it's it's very idyllic it's very pretty and it's very clean, and they keep it clean, and they keep it nice. Uh, you see the fields of food, and, and it just makes your mouth water as they're hungry and passing by them. The background still enacts on the kids of being things that, that are there, but they almost can't touch because they're in this yeah. prison of pain. <laughs> when you see the scene where the police officer... Yes. And that's a moment which... You kind of, for a moment or two, you get dangled a a little tiny worm on the hook going, there's some positive stuff going to happen. And all it was is not more negative stuff happened. Yeah. That was the level of positivity, right? And that's more when you get the true sense that the end of the storyline is coming Mm -hmm. at that moment. And I think that if you normally are watching a film like this, there's always that death of a child moment. Yes. It's the, the, my, the my goal moment, which is harrowing. But this is one of the few movies where it's like, okay, this is where they're going to bring that out. Mm-hmm. And it was not a feeling of, of guilt per se to say, oh, okay, we're there now. It was a, all right, this is the point in the tragedy where that occurs. I think th- what I found interesting was the minimal story between that event and what eventually is the end. Well, when your life is built on making sure somebody else is alive and that person dies and you have don't have the maturity or the resources or anything else that can provide you an impetus to even try to live. Yeah, what but that's I- the thing is that's the portion of the story that's missing. In my, in my mind, he, he didn't depict the heartache that he probably was affected by. I don't know if he did have heartache, though. That's the that's one of my questions about Saito. I don't know if by that point in time, if she had already died because her spirit had already died before her physical body, that when the physical body died, it's like, okay. I think my view of that would be he is someone that is so attuned to pride mm-hmm. and success that the defeat of his sister passing, yeah. when at that point in time, he hasn't necessarily known what's coming. Mm-hmm. There's no father to come home and say, good job. Mm-hmm. 
And I, that's another aspect to it where, again, it's, it's a tragedy. Yeah. And there's his father's not coming home. The war is over and they lost. And he's very nationalistic. His sister died. I mean, the only thing at that point in time that he is successful at is building a funeral pyre. Which he was told to do by a temple because she's a child. Yes. And he felt that too. And I think that all of the messages within the movie is someone's mea culpa and their complete guilt fest. Mm -hmm. But war sucks. And that's that's the thing is that if you look for whatever message you need to look for, but at the end of the day, all you can do is try to avoid this happening – which is a learning. Yeah. It it is interesting though. I would not I would not classify this as an anti-war movie though. Even though it is one of the themes, I wouldn't say that this is an anti-war film. I would say that it was a this is why it's bad film. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Right. And at the same time, it also demonstrates why one should plan. <laughs> and but again, this is 1940 whatever. It's probably more true to life than we could ever possibly imagine there were terrible things happening to people and i don't even want to think about what the author of this story went through Mm -hmm. i know what i went through watching it and it's got to be sanitized to some degree (laughs) but at the same time there's the film itself doesn't convey doesn't convey the gore that you might expect it to have license to do. Mm-hmm. If you turned off the soundtrack and listen, 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 listen to it and watched it all the way through, there's no scene in there necessarily you could be shooing away small children from. Uh, there's a couple of iffy moments, but it's the funeral pyre. The I funeral that. pyre and the, and the picture of his mother after she passes away and the maggots. And and I, yeah. I guess I've, I've, I've seen some change me little turtle turtles episodes, which is probably worse. Sure. 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 And, <laughs> and so, but, but I think that what made me, when I finished watching it the first time, knowing I was doing this, really changed the way I wanted to look at the movie too, though, because I found myself all the way through taking mental notes. And I watched it with my my wife and my sister-in-law, and I would say they both got through about 40 minutes and went, we're done. I, b- wow, they made it that far. Nice. <laughs> I thought they would have tapped out at five minutes. No. I'd be like, that first scene, we're, we're out done. here. <laughs> and so my sister-in-law... She loves Spirited Away. She, yes. She's one that, that showed me Spirited Away. And I called Studio Ghibli. Oh, we watched that. It'd be great. Like, uh, <laughs> maybe not. But they both said, okay, this, we're done. Where's the story? And I went, there's the story. And if it's autobiographical, mm-hmm. you just want to give him a hug. Yeah. But at the same time, they could have done so much more to make it visually and audio and just all the dialogue to make you feel bad. And I don't think they did. I think they left it to you mm-hmm. to choose your emotion. And that's probably why it's considered a work of art. As we kind of wrap up, you said two things at the beginning that I want to come back to. The two themes that you had, love is not enough. And I think I got this right. Survival is not always an option. Sometimes there is no room for optimism, only survival. Only survival. Trademark me. There you go. So <laughs> let's talk about the first one. Love is not enough. I agree with both of these. Love is not enough. He put as much love into caring for his sister. That's not going to feed somebody. That's not going to provide the correct emotional support because the emotional support that he was providing was not correct and could be seen as inappropriate. And it just doesn't work unless you have the maturity and the experiences to provide the other things that you need. Yeah. And then talk a bit about the survival, the, the, the survival one. The optimism from 
him was near perpetual. Mm -hmm. And if you have the capacity to be defiant when I'm fine, I'm going to go buy my own rice cooker, aunt, I'm Mm -hmm. going to go and buy my own rice. And we're just going to show you. If you have that optimism to be defiant, then wasn't that a similar lesson to food good, mm-hmm. starving bad? And I think that he was so focused on the moment of survival in a very, very narrow scope that he, he didn't actually have a moment to think of the next move, but was perpetually optimistic. It's going to be fine. Mm-hmm. You know, up until the point in time that the myth was revealed about his mother passing away, is it'll be, we'll see her. It'll be great. Father will come home. Everything is just going to be fine. I'll just keep it simmering. Mm-hmm. How do you simmer something? I'm not going to ask, but I'm going to, I'm going to do these things. I see other people do these things, but I'm too proud to ask what to do because optimism is a wonderful thing. But when you get to that point where it ties in, love is not enough, where you say, hold on a second, I'm not equipped to deal with this situation. Maybe I should put up my hand. Mm-hmm. Nah, we'll be fine. We'll be fine. And you can get by with that for a bit. But if you're sitting there going, hey, hey, you don't look really good, but you'll be fine. And I think that's the flaw. And that's the flaw in the character, which again comes back to the immaturity. Mm-hmm. And I think it might have perhaps been overemphasized by the author because of his guilt. Mm-hmm. But that's the reality of being X years old mm-hmm. and having the responsibilities of the world placed on your shoulder basically overnight. And yeah. I think love might not be not enough, but it's certainly above whatever's in third place. <laughs> All right. Let's go ahead and rate this film. I, I want to know, how many full bags of popcorn would you give this film? It made it to the IMDb top 100. Is it that five star? There's no halvesies here. It's not a five star. I would, If I'm looking at it from a culmination of production quality, mm-hmm. storyline, impact, assessment, dramatic element, creativity, and animation, I'm, I'm going to give it a three. Ooh. But... I think it's really a two, and I'm probably giving it that three because I know the impact it's had. Interesting. But if I were to watch it straight out the gate, it's two. And I think the reason is that it doesn't have any of the elements that I find compelling that draw me to watch something mm-hmm. other than the animation connected, the, the artistry of those people. I got that. That made sense. And the overall, the boldness of it, the voiceovers done by the characters, they were, they were largely non-energetic. Mm-hmm. They weren't necessarily overly, they didn't connect with me too over, mm-hmm. more than usual. The performances themselves were performances. But I think that the film itself, you need to add it to your list of things to watch to get an appreciation of other films. Yeah, And in that regard, not just in Japanese animation, but if you would look at things that are tragedies, you look at things that are, it refers back to, to war movies, things that are, to, which if you're looking at things that are, are historical, or there's no really element of fantasy to this film as well, but the opening moments of it yeah. are, like I say, the only breath of optimism. It's like, great, the kids die, and that's the good <laughs> bit. And that's, you don't say that about movies usually. But you just get that idea. And I think that because of it makes you think that way, um, that's why I'm saying it's two. But I kind of want to say a three. But if you hold me to it, I would say a two. Hmm. That is is very surprising because I really come at this and 
I, I'm more in the four and five area just because of the emotional impact for me. I think it's a beautiful film to look at. I think that while there there's no story per se, except for the story of what of the retelling of what happened. It's a snapshot of the end of life of these two individuals, the tragic end of it. And I, I think I end up going with a four on it because I, I recognize how impressive and how important this film is. But I also have to just take one step back and say, I can't always I can't go to this film again. I, I may may watch it again some point in time, but there is there, I don't have the. I personally don't have the release of of being able to just let it go or to just you know bring it in, enjoy it, and watch it, and then walk away from it. I am going to be carrying it with me for a while, and that in and of itself means that I just it's not something I want to carry with me. <laughs> See, and I think I think the art of it is what I connected with first, and perhaps that's why it's not as harrowing. Yeah, and I want a better phrase. So I I, I will reveal to you all. I sat in a theater with tears in my eyes and Spider-Man 2. That's fine. That's acceptable. I'll always be standing in your doorway. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I, and I, I can't watch the end of Endgame without crying. So, you know, so that's an example where because to me that thing connected yes. because I had no idea it was coming and that scene happened. Yeah. Whereas with this movie, I know it's coming oh, because yeah. it's the juggernaut right in front of me first scene yeah and i'm like well that that got rid of my my lulling there was no sense of anything other than this is in your face bad stuff happens Mm -hmm. and i think that if they had taken that and actually moved it to the end how would that have altered the movie Hmm. that's that's a fascinating question right there because you do get the sense right away once you find out the kids die and, and the rest of the movie is, okay, how did they get to this point? There is a little bit of steam out of the sails, and you're just, you're, you're, you're chugging up that long mountain of pain and suffering and sorrow. And then when you get to the end, like, okay, that, that's how they got there. All right, fine. And so you're, you're just emotionally exhausted by the end. Whereas if you're watching through it and you don't necessarily know the ending, and you're just watching this, you're going to probably be going into it with, it's going to be okay. He keeps telling me it's going to be okay. That's right. The father's going to come back. It's going to be okay. Exactly. The Um, father's going to come back. An adult is going to step in at any point in time now and save this girl and save this boy. And, oh, dear God, no, it didn't happen. Everybody died. This is horrible. You know, you're probably going to come out shocked if you have the the film edited a different way instead of just the emotional drain. But that's the question. What is the what is the idea behind what the filmmaker wants to provide to you? So is it is it good writing mm-hmm. or is it writing and good filmmaking or is it just a bad story that needs to be told? And when you're saying bad story, you're saying it's a story about negative story. a negative story. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. I think that the, I think that what's presented is still I think it's still a good film. And I think that you're it's good. To give you some idea, a five would be an incredible movie for me to rate a five. So a two, a three would probably be your four or five. I don't know. <laughs> um, but I'm, I truly, I get it. Mm-hmm. But I can think of other movies that might connect with me mm-hmm. more. But I don't want to disparage the fact that this was, this definitely is, as you said, is a grab a puppy. Mm-hmm. But I'm fortunate in... There's an objectivity about the characters that perhaps appeals to me more yeah. because there's things I'm very objective about. I'm, I'm glad there's not a sequel. <laughs> no, <don't. laughs> 
uh, Grave of the Fireflies 2. This time it's personal. Um, That's right. I, I, I think that you were right before when you said that this is a very important movie. Um, and I think it is. I think that, that it does. Even with your two, I think you would agree with me on this. It belongs, and you even said so, it belongs on a list of films that you should see. You should see it. But at the same time, for those of you that don't want to experience something that is very difficult, be forewarned before going into it. Hold on to those puppies. Hold on, you know, hold on to uh, whatever you can to keep your joy and happiness because this film takes the happiness and brings it out back and does not bring it back in. <laughs> or it reminds you that happiness you've got is so important and special. So important. So very important. All right. Normally at this point in time, I let my guest say where people can find them, but because he gave this film a two, I think he's going to go hide away on the internet somewhere and never be seen again. No, no. Uh, Roy is a good friend of mine, and, and if you have been following along on Logbox Crusade, uh, Jared and I have done, well, at the time we're recording this, we have done one. We may do some more in the future of mystery box openings where I have a friend who has gotten rid of a bunch of media and sent it to me. Roy is that guy. So thank you very much for that, Roy. And as for where else you can find me, if you want to reach me and talk to me and, you know, tell me how bad your life sucks after watching this film, you can find me on Twitter at mmuckabout. Or you can find me on my other podcast, Unpacking the Power of Power Pack, which I host with my co-host Jeff, who I call My Hard Little Rock Candy. Aww. <laughs> if you would like to be on the show, please feel free to contact me. You can reach me at Jeff and Rick present all one word at gmail.com. Big thank you to the Longbox Crusade Network for letting me use this wonderful attic of their headquarters to broadcast my show. And to all of the Longbox Crusade members who help support this network. If you would like to support the network, head on over to Patreon, search for Longbox Crusade, throw in a buck or two. That's all the time we have for this week. Please grab the popcorn and pull up a seat for our next episode. The music for this episode is Fall Back by musical genius Joe November. Check out his SoundCloud at JoeSeflin99. That's J-O-S-E-F-L-I-N-99. 